welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. We're starting a new series called Present Future Church today. And um, according to the scriptures, the church is the first fruits of what's to come. Um, we are to be a picture, a signpost, a taste of what heaven looks like here and now on earth as we live. And this is the inception, or this is the design that God has created um, through Jesus. Jesus commissioned us to reflect his image back into the world. We are to look as good and beautiful as Jesus looks. And I would say, if maybe you would disagree, but I feel like the greatest problem with Christianity today are Christians. Amen. That Christianity would be amazing if there weren't people involved. But we're a bunch of broken people that lack the ability to honestly, with integrity, reflect Jesus back. It seems to me like when I look at the church in the West, for most of the time, and I'm not gonna criticize her, what I see is a church that doesn't look like Jesus. And if you ask non-Christians, in fact, there's great studies that have uh, been done in the United States and the Western Christianity looking at the perspective of un-Christians or non-Christians looking into Christianity, and they say the top three things are they're judgmental, hypocritical, and anti-homosexual. That those, that's the reputation of God's church. Isn't that interesting? And when I see Jesus in the scriptures, I don't see that at all. I see judgment towards the religious folks. I see inclusivity and forgiveness and extension of grace and family to people that don't deserve it, especially the people that don't deserve it. And so my attempt, honestly, in this series was uh, the result as I was spending the month of July praying and reading and discerning what to, to lead in. This, I'll be fully honest with you guys. This was the first time in 11 years now of prepping series for the year. I didn't have this sense of this is where we're going. For the next year, I really felt like the Lord said, walk in the spirit with me. And so like, it's gonna be hard for me. Um, to do this, but I'm, I'm gonna do my best to be present to the things of the Spirit because I feel like where we go is gonna take the presence of God, which is what I wanna talk about today. But as I was prepping this series, I felt like God say, why don't you write and dream of a series that's dedicated toward your children, which is quite funny. But why not write the desire and the hope that the church becomes and is that you can, and my mission is to give away a big and beautiful church to the next generation that they don't have to heal from the wounds of the church like so many of us have had to heal from. I was driving um, on, in an Uber to LAX last week and my, I always talk to my Uber drivers and it was actually Lyft. I was talking to my Lyft driver and um, we get to talking about, she's very talkative and her, her son calls and she answers it and we interact as a result. And um, through the process of dialogue, 30 minutes to LAX, she um, calls all of her children and tell, her, tell them about the Garden Church. Um, and at one point, I apologized for the treatment of her whole oldest daughter that she, uh, her daughter received at a church in Long Beach for um, struggling with sexuality and issues and recognizing that the whole family got excommunicated essentially because of some of the things that her daughter was struggling with. And she's weeping and she calls her daughter and I realized that there's a mission in the world right now to look as the church to look as good and beautiful as Jesus, and I want the garden to do that. So present future church, we live as a, as a, 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 a taste of what's to come. At the 2004 Olympics, 
at the Olympic Games, an American named Matt Emmons was competing in the air rifle competition. He was competing in the three position event. You lay on your stomach, you uh, kneel, and then you shoot on your feet 50 meters away from the target. And he was going into his final shot and he was in first place guaranteeing the gold for the United States of America. He was gonna win the gold medal. All he had to do was shoot a mediocre shot and hit anywhere on the target. He held his breath, he aimed, he shot his final shot and he hit the bullseye right in the center. And he went from, looked at the scoreboard, he went from first to eighth place. He had hit the bullseye on the wrong target, losing his place in the 2004 Olympics. Perhaps this is the best example or parable for where the American church is today. In our age of proficiency, we might be hitting the bullseye on the wrong target. The American church has celebrated proficiency as the way of America, and it's integrated into all things in the church. We have excellent programs for kids, for youth, for every age and every preference and every form of stage of life you might have. We are specialists in every field in the church. There are books and podcasts and worship albums and Bible apps. There are preachers with millions of followers who are called celebrity pastors who speak like TED Talks every time they preach a sermon. We have a Bible, um, we have technology like never before and information and content coming to us um, every day, I have a Bible app on my computer and it's actually on my phone that gives me a library of resource that I took two, uh, an entire year to study at college and now I can literally push the button and get all the information. All of those hours and papers and studying in the school and learning how to use a library is no longer relevant because of one app. I can FaceTime friends in Australia and meet with churches around the world. I can preach a sermon in England and it could be listened to in podcast in parts of Egypt. Our, our current podcast is all over the world. People in uh, the Middle East, in Africa, in all over Asia, in Australia are listening to this little tiny church in downtown Long Beach. We have organizations like World Vision that connects us to the global poor with efficiency. And we have become as a church efficient and effective and proficient. And there has never been a time in history where people had access to great teaching, to great worship, to Jesus. But is it really working? Even with all of this, are more people following Jesus? Are cities being transformed and renewed? Or are we hitting the bullseye on the wrong target? And this is what I wrestle with. This is what I've been thinking about. So what's our bullseye? Well, what's the church? The church, according to scripture, is the family of God. The church is uh, the, the body of Christ on earth, or as I like to say, if you could get down, boil down what it means to be church, according to the scriptures, the church, this is my definition, in its primal essence is both a local and global group of people who have uh, come to believe Jesus is Lord and raised from the dead. They continue the mission of Jesus on earth through the power of the Holy Spirit, making disciples of all nations, reconciling all people back to God, renewing all things wherever they go as they go. They gather together to worship, to pray, to read scripture, and to live in authentic community with one another through the generous sharing of resources, food, and life. I didn't say it was a building. I didn't say it was an event or a brand. 
The church doesn't need a website. The church doesn't need an Instagram account. The church doesn't need a podcast or an album released every year. At the core of the church, if we define what the aim is, the people of God on mission together. So this is who we are. We are the people of God on mission together. Together, Let us not forget. Let us not forget who we are and why we are here. In Deuteronomy, if you have a Bible, go to Deuteronomy chapter four. You didn't see that coming. Deuteronomy chapter four, I know. The book uh, Deuteronomy is written by Moses. It's his final address to the people of God, the people he'd been leading for a generation. They're about to cross over the promised land across over the Jordan and into the promised land. And they're about to be without Moses' stable presence and leadership. And no doubt, he chooses in this book his words very carefully. And there's one dominant theme that is overemphasized over and over again in the entire book. And the word, the theme, is remember. Remember. Remember not to forget. Don't forget to remember. Remember to remember. This is literally what the book of Deuteronomy is all about. Remember you were slaves. Remember God rescued you. Remember God provided for you. Remember the wilderness. Remember God fought against your enemies. Remember he parted the seas. Remember he gave you shelter. Remember he gave you water and daily bread. Remember his covenant. Deuteronomy chapter four, it says this in verse nine. Only be careful and watch yourselves closely so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen or let them fade from your heart as long as you live. Teach them to your children and to their children after them. There's this command as the people of God to remember God in all that he has done. Teach them to your children and to your children's children. You exist for legacy as the people of God because you're one generation away from being extinct. So don't live for yourself. Live in a way that passes on all that you observed in your life to the generations, three generations down. Verse, or chapter eight, it continues. And go there if you would in your Bibles. Chapter eight, verse 10. Moses says again, and this is again warning to the people of God. When you've eaten, and are satisfied. Praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws and his decrees that I am giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, and when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and your flocks grow large and your silver and your gold increase and all you have is multiplied. So you don't want that to be answered today. And when you're, uh, uh, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery. Verse 17, you may say to yourself, my power and my strength, my intellect, my relationships, 
I put that in there. Uh, my, my fame and my Instagram, my connections and my network, whatever, my hands have produced this wealth for me. My Enneagram type, my Myers-Briggs type, my education that I earned, my hard work and discipline, my self-discipline, my Tony Robbins discipline. Tim, what's his name? Who am I thinking of? Tim Ferriss, come on, my four-hour work. No, I'm just kidding. This uh, did this. He says, my power and my strength of the power, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me, but remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and to confirm, uh, and so confirms his covenant which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. So Deuteronomy is this fascinating book and I was reading it while I was on break um, or as a, on my study break thinking about the church and where we're headed because, because um, Deuteronomy is, hey guys, you're gonna go from the wilderness into abundance. You're gonna go from struggle into having room to rest, lands that produce crops, grapes, wine, food, copper, and gold. You're gonna have peace. This is gonna be given to you. You're gonna go from struggle to abundance. Does anyone know what that's like? Anyone get married young? Like, I remember date nights were like gift cards from my mom to Panera Bread. <laughs> True story. Like, we didn't have money for laundry. My mom gave me quarters every week. God bless you, mom. We don't forget. I don't forget. Because I know what it's like to struggle to pay off student loans, to, to walk dogs when you're planting a church because you have one income and it's not necessarily enough. Does anyone know what it's like? Some of you are here and you're in the struggle. You're wondering where rent's gonna come. You're wondering who's gonna furnish your apartment because it's your first apartment. And the answer to that is the garden's gonna help you with that. Just let us know. We'll take care of that. That's what we do here. But there is this journey towards, no longer does this, I, I have a friend and he, he started this side project and the goal was to just make enough a day to buy a coffee out. That project turned into his wife not having to work and paying, uh, buying a house. And, he, and, and it's funny because I'm like, you go from an, a, a hobby to a career and it, all of a sudden it shifts and the word for those that go from the wilderness to the promised land is to remember the wilderness. Because what happens in the wilderness? You know what is forged in the wilderness? Dependence. You're gonna go and you're gonna, God takes a, a, a tribe of slaves and he says, I'm gonna be your God and you're gonna be my treasured possession. You're my people. But I gotta, I gotta train the slave mindset out of you. How does he take a group of slaves who produce bricks seven days a week and train them to become promised land inheritance kinds of people? Wanna know how? All right, guys, I'm gonna provide food for you every day. Here's what you're gonna do. You're gonna go to sleep. So this whole, I gotta earn, I gotta work to get my keep, I gotta fight off everyone else to have enough. No, 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 the way it's gonna work from now on is you're gonna go to sleep. And when you wake up, there's gonna be this thing out there that in Hebrew is called, what is it? Manna, that's the literal definition of manna is, what is it? 
which is great. So when what is it is there, it's like who's on first, what's on second, I don't know who's on third. It's literally comedy in the Old Testament, in the language. So manna is gonna show up, and here's the deal, every day I'm gonna provide manna for you. Every day. Every day. And you just, all you have to do is collect enough for the day. Now, if you're a slave, with a slave mindset, an orphan mindset even, you don't know, you know scarcity. You know you earn that bread. You fight for that bread. You protect that bread against everyone else. And if there's more, you hold on to it because you don't know what tomorrow brings. And the way God creates a people of dependence is through daily provision and, to, uh, and daily provision through bread. He brings water. He fights off their enemies. He, teach them, he teaches them to intercede. He teaches them daily dependence on God who is provider. And they don't even believe it at first, so they actually collect more than enough, some of them in the beginning. They're like, all right, wait, he says only enough for today. I'm gonna grab enough for three days. And then the stuff that doesn't last for three days gets rotten. And what's even more fascinating is on, on, on Friday, the day before Sabbath, God's like, hey, here's what you're gonna do because I wanna teach you how to rest. Which, by the way, is, Sabbath is a discipline of dependence in an age and culture of working to prove identity, worth, and value. It's resistance against the culture of the world to rest. And God says, you're not gonna collect anything that day. In fact, you're gonna collect it the day before. And that day, manna will last for two days because you'll have enough for two. Isn't that crazy? So he says in Deuteronomy, don't forget about the dependence. Don't forget that when you were hungry, I filled your stomach. So in other words, remember to stay hungry when you are satisfied. Remember to stay hungry when you have abundance. I was thinking about this. How do I tell the church to the message I wanted to share today is to stay hungry? How do I teach a church to stay hungry? And I, I was talking to Alex late last night and I had this revelation. You actually don't have to try to be hungry. You will naturally be hungry at least three times a day. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like the thing is you actually have to fill yourself because your body naturally is, its default setting is to hunger some, for something. Your body is designed to hunger substance so you can live. And your job is to fill yourself with proper nutrition. Are you with me? You are also designed as a human to live in a dependent relationship with God. You will naturally crave partnership and communion with the living being, but you will fill it with everything else in your life. The problem isn't whether or not you'll be hungry. The problem is will you fill yourself with God or not? Will you put yourself in a posture that requires God to provide or will you fill it with spiritual potato chips watching a YouTube video? Will you fill it with those sexual relationships with someone that's not your spouse? Will you fill it with meaning and purpose outside of a relationship to God? That's the real question. And it's funny because um, Sigmund Freud said this, people are hungry for love. 
Carl Jung said, people are hungry for security. Alfred Adler said, people are hungry for significance, love, security, significance. And Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. He is the solution to our hunger. He is the longing of our hearts. We must not forget that deep in the human condition is this deeper desire for more, and that more must be filled with the presence of God. Not some program, not some podcast, not some commodity worship album that gets you in the mood, not some just out of obedience, but because you know that your soul is craving the presence of God. Not some emotional high in an event, not some great word for the day, but the presence of Jesus in your life. Church, stay hungry. Stay hungry for the presence. We live in a time where there's great teaching. You can listen to the greatest teachers in the world every single day of your existence. You can listen to books. You can go online and watch university professors preach in these dynamic videos, master class. You can listen to the best worship music in the entire world, but is it changing anything? It's Jesus, his presence that's needed in the world, in you. Church, the church of the future has to stay hungry for the presence of God. It has to rely on the presence of God to show, oh, we got our programs, we got our emotionally healthy, we got our alpha, we got our Sunday gatherings, we got our house churches. All those are vehicles to get you to the presence. They're not the solution. God is the solution. And as long as we're filling ourselves with everything else, we'll never really know what satisfies We'll never really get it. And I wonder if this is a moment in culture, this is a moment in the American church that we have an opportunity to not forget. We have an opportunity to remember and to remain faithfully dependent upon the Lord, to stay hungry. There's this moment um, I wanna share with you uh, in Mark chapter six. So go to the Bible, let's look at this. Mark chapter six, there's a story that's very familiar to us. Are we doing all right, church? I'm glad. How amazing was Michael last week? I was like laughing in tears, overwhelmed with joy, and my face hurt because I was smiling so much watching Michael preach an extraordinary sermon. So, such a gift. Mark chapter six. So verse 30. Right before this moment, Jesus is in his hometown, Nazareth, and he, he, he goes there, and they, they don't honor him. They, they nearly mock him. Who is this? And there's, he only performs a couple of miracles. And then the very next moment, he sends out his 12 disciples. He gives them authority to do what he did, to cast out demons, to heal the sick, and to proclaim the kingdom of God. And so he says, go, and they go out, and they actually do this. And then, and then in verse 14, King Herod hears about the disciples doing this and Jesus. So their fame begins to spread. And in that next story, John the Baptist is beheaded. And then we get this other story. So all this stuff's going on and then the disciples come back from doing the things of Jesus, casting out demons, healing the sick, proclaiming the kingdom of God. And this is what happens, verse 30. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going, they did not even have a chance to eat. He said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place 
and get some rest. So they, were, they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran out, ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. So this is what happens. They go and do the stuff. They come back. And Mark, the only time in the Gospel of Mark, he says, the apostles. There's a title shift from disciples to apostles. Apostles in Mark's gospel is reserved for this prophetic moment that happens after Jesus um, ascends and they're filled with the Holy Spirit. The word apostles used by the Greeks and the Romans for people in government positions that worked on behalf of Rome to represent the kingdom of Rome and the king's way and the culture of Rome wherever they went. So they were sent ones on behalf of kings to bring about the culture of Rome wherever Rome occupied territories. So they would bring the thinking, their theology, their myths, their stories, their, their gymnasium, their politics, their way of life. Sent ones were sent with authority to bring a way of life to places that didn't have that way of life of Rome or Greece. And that is the word or phrase that's used for the church as the apostles, the sent ones, the church's apostolic. We are to bring the kingdom of heaven life wherever we go so it looks wherever we are like heaven when we are there that is the task of the apostles to transform culture into the likeness of heaven how are we doing church so the apostles, and then, and then he goes back to calling them disciples. There's this prophetic moment, this is what's going on. Because if you keep reading, they do all the stuff of Jesus, and then Jesus is like, all right, you guys gotta get some rest. You didn't have time to eat, let's go away. Let's go to the other side. And they get to the other side, and they don't just recognize Jesus anymore. They recognize the apostles. They have the ability to do the things that Jesus did. Isn't that interesting? Now they recognize them, popularity more followers on Instagram and Facebook, larger crowd. People know who I am when I walk into, you know, recreational coffee shop. That feels so good. <laughs> Jesus has compassion on them. And they're starving. They didn't have any food. They didn't get to eat. So the disciples, I just want you to imagine being hangry. Anyone know what that feels like? Yes, you do. All the wives hit your husbands. Yes, you know what that feels like. Um, my wife still carries snacks around for me, not just our kids, because she knows. <laughs> it's a real problem. It's a real, I'm gonna start a campaign to end all hanger in the world. And um, so he re the crowds recognize him. Let's get away. Let's be with Jesus, because that's the source of the ministry for them. The source is being in the presence of Jesus. Remember in, in Mark chapter, I think, three, he said he calls the 12 to be with him first and then to send them out to do what Jesus did. So the call of every disciple is to first be with Jesus, then from that source, that space of dependence to do the things of Jesus. It's not just to get really good at doing the things of Jesus and then marketing it to the world and having uh, you know, an ebook and all the other things that come with it. But it's actually to stay in this humble reliance and dependence on the presence of God for daily bread. So here it is, disciples are hungry. They need to eat. 
Jesus sees the crowd, they're trying to get away, and there's a giant crowd, and he has compassion. They recognize the disciples, they recognize Jesus. He begins to teach them, he's moved. And then it says, verse 35, by this time, it's, it was late in the day, so the, the, the disciples' stomachs were grumbling, and they came to him, I put that in there. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countrysides and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Amen, brother, whoever said that. He's concerned for the people. We always give the disciples a bad rap, like, oh, Jesus is compassionate, and they have no compassion. No, he's concerned. They're hungry like us. (laughs) They need food to eat, and they're doing what they've been taught to do, take care of the people. They're doing it, following, hey, they're hungry. I don't know, I know you got something else that you eat, you know, in like the story of, I have have to do the work of my father. I don't know how good that feels, but uh, I know that pancakes on Sunday morning sound delicious, you know? Um, And so he says, send them home, and then this is what always trips me out. So like, they're with Jesus, they're doing what, they've become, experts, proficient in doing the things of Jesus to the point where they recognize him. And then Jesus says, you give them something to eat. Curveball. Wait a second. And so in there, this, and this is a great story. You get, and then they said, well, well okay, the Excel, Excel spreadsheet and the ministry plan budgeting process, like that would take more than half a year's wages. We got these, we got this communication strategy. We got this, like, we got this whole budget marked out for the year. And are we, to, are we gonna go spend that much on bread? Are we gonna spend that much on bread and give them something to eat? I mean, I guess that's an extravagantly generous gift, Jesus. But we don't, we don't got that kind of money. That's a year and a half to feed all these people. That would take more than a year's of wages. Are we gonna spend that much on bread and give them something to eat? And then Jesus says, well, how much, how many loaves do you have? Now, he said, go and see. And when they found out they had five loaves and two fish, five loaves and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups in the grass areas. So he sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. So all you administrative types, yes, there was organization and order. There was fifties and the hundreds. There were categories. There was order. God bless the administrators. Amen. <clears throat> Taking, I, I like, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven. Then he gave thanks. Sorry, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them back to the disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them. They all ate and were satisfied and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of men who had eaten was 5,000. I just want to pause for a moment. Just this moment is so miraculous to me because what Jesus does is he takes their scarcity. He takes what they lack, five and two. He takes what little they have. He takes it from them and he redirects it to heaven. He redirects it and get, thank you. Thank you for this. You are the sustainer. He remembers the wilderness. 
you've provided this, this half a lunch for a boy. Thank you, God. He takes it, he redirects it, he gives thanks, he breaks the bread. Symbol of sharing, this is, breaking bread is a Jewish custom of breaking up. It's about communion and fellowship and friendship. With, it's, it's, it's a symbolic act of recognizing God has provided and you break it to share with your family and your friends and your community. And then the thing that's so amazing is Jesus, Jesus gives it back to the disciples. Here's what little you have, pass it out, and they produce the miracle. They produce the miracle of feeding 5,000 people or more. He takes it, he redirects it, he gives thanks, he, he breaks it, and he gives it to his disciples to distribute the mir- miraculous provision. I can't help but think this is probably the story for the American church in this moment. That perhaps with all of our programming, with all of our podcasting and websites and seminaries and education and Instagramming and YouTube, Bible software, Bible apps, purpose-driven, emotionally healthy, radical house churches, Hillsong, Bethel, Kellers, Johnsons, Willards, Judas, Lenses, and Houstons, we might be at the end of an American church moment that requires us to take what we have, redirect it towards heaven, give thanks for it, and ask God to break it so that he can give it away to a future generation and people that will steward it. Perhaps the story of American church is that we need to humble ourselves and give it away to our brothers and sisters and other parts of the world in our nation who haven't had the platforms that we've had. Just a thought. Amuse me for a second in a prophetic whim that as a movement, the church is at its end of its proficiency. Would you agree? We have the best teaching, the best worship, access to more than any other uh, generation in history, yet with all this proficiency, what do we have? We've come to the end of ourselves, and what we need is a miracle. What we need is revival. What we need is reformation and a movement and a great awakening in the American church. And throughout history, when culture was the darkest, when Christianity seemed to be fading into secular oblivion, or in other places around the world where Christianity was publicly denounced and persecuted, history shows us time and time again, radical renewal and revival was on the way. Perhaps this is where we find ourselves, at the beginning of a new movement or revival, and the outcome will not be as the result of great preaching or podcasts. It won't be because a worship band had a song for a movement. It won't be the result of awesome programming. It will only be the result because of the sovereign sovereign presence of God decide to show up and people cried out for him and nothing else not for success, not for fame, but for the presence of God and his glory, and maybe this is what the church needs. Maybe what we need is to stop thinking about our business expansions and our personal dreams and goals, but maybe we should get to a place where we just think about God, and that's it. Because God, in every glimpse of heaven we get in the scripture, has creatures that are designed to worship for all of eternity, holy, 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 for the rest of eternity, holy, holy, holy. We can't get bored of saying that. We get bored because we're competing with our phones, with, our, with everything else that distracts us. And maybe it's time to turn our attention to the presence of God, to recognize our limitations, and to cry out 
for him to do something in our marriages, to do something in our personal lives, to break habits, to break addiction, to break the, the pain of racism that's over our nation, the political strife, the freaking mass shootings. Send our kids to public school and there's a shoot, it's crazy, what are we doing? We need to get on our knees and pray for Jesus to come to bring his presence and to heal and to do the things that he promises he will do. I want impartation of the spirit. To, I want us to have worship sets where we're on the floor and we can't help but lay down because we don't know what else to do. I don't want to be proficient. I don't want to be a famous preacher. I want a church that knows how to stay hungry. The future church knows how to get hungry for the presence of God. This is where we have to go. We don't have to get better at techniques. We have to get in the presence of God. We have to repent. We have to hunger. We have to recognize it is all about him. He's the one who provides. He's gonna give us the miracle. And revival throughout history just takes a few people who are hungry. In the Hebrides revival in Scotland, two older women prayed faithfully for years and the revival broke out in Scotland. There was a re revival that broke out in Wales. The Welsh revival was the result of 12 young people repenting and pursuing a life of holiness and calling out to God and it transformed an entire region. The revival on Zizendorf's land who began the Moravian movement in the 1700s which influenced John Wesley which produced the Methodist movement and the missionary movement had a 100 year prayer never ceasing movement that took place because of one, a couple of hundred people were on this, this land of Count Zizendorf and they, 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 was, they were fighting, and they were arguing, and this man went house to house, and they began to teach the scriptures and recognizing that there has to be brotherly love amongst us. And they began to pray and worship, and revival broke out, and it influenced the world. This tiny community, this Pentecostal preacher named William Seymour came to LA looking for a job, was hired, and after preaching his first sermon got fired from the church and he began a small prayer gathering in the upper room in a place that is known as the Azusa Street and it began the Pentecostal revival which as a result there are one quarter of all of Christianity, two billion plus people are Pentecostals because of a pastor who got fired for poor preaching but knew how to pray. Are you inspired? Do it again. Do it again, Jesus. Do it again, that's the cry of my heart. I wanna hunger for his presence. I want you to stay hungry for the presence of God. I want your life to be meaningless apart from Jesus and his presence. I don't care how successful you are, how many people you know, or what your dreams are. I wanna know is your vision, Jesus and his presence, because that's the posture of this church. We're gonna be totally dependent and we're gonna stay hungry, amen? Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit garden.church.